Previously on Hound Radio's Arch Campbell podcast. They had red carpets. It was They were like the saddest red carpets you've ever seen. <laughs> where like, here comes the executive producer. And here's here's the grip. Hooper and, and, and the crowd. Look, were, it's his mama. Yeah. The Arch Campbell podcast featuring Arch, Lou Katz, and a cast of thousands begins now. <laughs> Well, that is uh, Bill Newcott of the Saturday Evening Post talking about the red carpet scene or the lack of it at the uh, Toronto Film Festival this year. And uh, it's always fun to hear from Bill. I am Arch Campbell, and this is the podcast that tries to keep you up on the ever-changing world of entertainment. Lou Katz is producing and directing at Katz Podcast Headquarters. Right, and I have my nice, my, my nice new fresh red carpet here in the studio, so, we're, <laughs> so I'm on it. I'm on it. Anybody? Who's the most famous person on your red carpet? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> yeah. Our guest today includes Caitlin Benson Allott, the professor of English and director of film and media studies at Georgetown University. And Caitlin, I am so glad to welcome you. It's been a while since you've been on, and I'm glad you could be with us. Thanks for having me back, Arch. It's wonderful to be here. You got my attention a couple of several months ago when you wrote an article in the Washington Post. I went to the movies after COVID, and they're making the same old thing. <laughs> Maybe you feel different about that now. We might touch on that. But first, returning today, it's our longtime friend, Jen Cheney of Vulture and New York Magazine. And Jen, hey, so Jen. good to have you back. Thank you for having me. And I understand you have just returned from Las Vegas. That is correct. And I was do there. I assume that you solved the uh, murder of Tupac. Tupac yep. Yep. <laughs> There's no coincidence. They finally figured it out during the two days I was there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll never tell. So what about Vegas? What took you out there? Uh, so I was writing a piece about Sphere, which is this new entertainment venue from the people who brought you Madison Square Garden. Uh, mm. It's called sphere because it is a huge orb in the middle of las vegas uh with state-of-the-art visuals and sound and u2 is playing a residency there through december so i was there for opening night to write about the experience and it was it was something else it was pretty incredible i was prepared to be let down and i was not wow so what does that say about entertainment these days that kind of the anti-covid let's go to a concert again what does that say? And it brings up to me the the theater uh, release coming forward with uh, Taylor Swift. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of excitement about live shows again, um, as you said, because of COVID sort of going away, I guess you could say. Um, and certainly we've had some big artists like Taylor Swift, like Beyonce, like Harry Styles, who I have to bring up at every opportunity. <laughs> um, who have been doing these big tours um, that are that are very exciting. And Taylor Swift is going to be in movie theaters uh, very soon with that tour. Beyonce is going to be right on her heels in November with a movie version of her Renaissance tour that is going to be in theaters. So I think there's a real excitement around live music. Sphere is is an unusual situation because it's this meeting of that experience, the live experience with the virtual, the the sort of pitch for this venue was 
it's VR goggles without the goggles. And so they're able to, like during Where the Streets Have No Name during the U2 show, the entire dome made you feel like you were in a desert and watching the sun rise and set throughout the course of the song. And I was thinking to myself, what is different about this versus being outside? And, and I'm like, I mean, obviously some things, but also I can, I can trick myself into thinking I am. Um, and there's all these kind of effects that they haven't even deployed yet there. Like they'll be able to do wind and smell and uh, some of the seats will move at some point. So I think there's an opportunity there to make you feel like you're completely somewhere else, which I find fascinating. Now, this is an audio only podcast, but I see Caitlin uh, nodding her head up and down. <laughs> and And what I'm still kind of hung up on is... What does it mean that the conversation about movies now is uh, about musicians, about Taylor Swift, especially that she went around the studios and made a deal with AMC? Yeah, I think it's really interesting to see um, both the kind of excitement for going back to the stadium, right, for these sort of arena headliner acts that we saw over the summer, particularly um, Beyonce and Taylor Swift, but also a kind of correlative enthusiasm for the concert film. Like I would also add um, the remastering and re-release of Stop Making Sense that just premiered at the Toronto Film Festival and is now in theaters across North America. It's really interesting to me that we've entered a phase, it seems, where concerts are both incredibly desirable. Again, people want that live experience and they're so prohibitively expensive for a lot of folks that there is also a real eagerness to engage with a recorded, um, mediated version of the concert experience. Like personally, my family couldn't get Swift tickets and we weren't really sure we wanted to spend that much money either. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm excited to go to the Eras show when it opens um, at an independent theater near me here in DC. And I think it's gonna be really interesting to think about how theatrical spaces perhaps continue to open themselves up to multimedia presentations like this, right? I'm thinking also of like the kind of simulcast um, that became more popular in the 21st century in movie theaters, you know, the opera, um, yeah, yeah, quote unquote, yeah. live theater. So this mm -hmm. is one way in which I feel like uh, cinemas are changing in the United States. They're not just for feature films. They never were just for feature films, right? We remember um, during the days of the movie palaces that they used to also be venues for seeing live acts. But maybe some of that variety is starting to come back to our cinema culture. And I think that could be a good thing. Wow. Well, uh, speaking of good things and uh, what we're talking about, Jen, what, what are you watching these days? What do you like? You know, I haven't been watching much because I've been so focused on you two, but um, I did keep up with the most recent season of Only Murders in the Building, which just mm -hmm. wrapped up um, yes. earlier this week. And I did not think they were going to do a fourth one, but they're doing a fourth one. Um, 
they always or at least in the past you know once you realize that you get to the end of the finale and like maybe there's another murder and they're like oh by the way there's a fourth season we're not just gonna leave a dead person and not like address it um i don't know i i always enjoy the show i love i think martin short is exquisite in it in particular and i like the chemistry between him and obviously steve martin and and selena gomez um, I thought the mystery this season, it didn't conclude. I thought that next to last episode was much more interesting than the last one. Like I kind of, that yeah. was on my mind of a thing that could, I won't reveal who the killer was, but it was on my mind that, okay, that's a potential outcome. Like I was not shocked by what happened at all. Um, and I think that's the tough thing when you do these kind of murder mystery shows is how do you keep the mystery part interesting? Uh, and moving it to Broadway the way they did was you know gave it a different milieu than it yeah, had. I, I loved that they that they did their show uh on the finale i i had kind of mm -hmm. run out of gas on only murders in the building and uh and they got me about three episodes back when uh meryl streep was um a uh suspect mm -hmm. but i loved uh seeing the songs actually performed in the mm -hmm. theater I, I i thought that was just Lovely. Caitlin, you, you watching Only Murders? Or... You know, I haven't been. I watched season one and oh. I enjoy it, but especially um, around this time of year, i.e. October, um, my tastes tend to go a little bit darker. As Arch knows, <laughs> um, I've been a horror movie yes. fan for, for most <laughs> of my life. So I'm in more of a horror movie and horror tv uh place at the moment and what what in horror are you liking especially well like a lot of people i'm um a big fan of the series that mike flanagan uh has been doing these sort of gothic television anthology or mini series for netflix so um his uh i guess it'll be his fourth now um the Fall of the House of Usher mm. isn't out yet, but it's coming soon, October 12th, as a matter of fact. Who are you, Consequence? And tonight is consequential. Uh, so I was just re-watching um, the house, uh, sorry, The Haunting of Bly Manor, which was his um, adaptation of Henry James's The Turn of the Screw um, a few years ago. And sort of in preparation for the way in which Flanagan depicts haunting in creepy and uncanny, but not necessarily bloody ways. So very different from something like American Horror Story and perhaps more accessible to fans of yours, Arch, who aren't um, as up for the blood and gore as some of us. Some of us scare kind of easily. Do they still get together at Edgar Allan Poe's uh, graveyard, gra his, uh, his grave in Baltimore? Ooh, that's Did a still go there. Do that? I've never done it, but I think people still do make the pilgrimage. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And I, I just uh, quickly, I've, I've started watching, um, uh, House of Usher. I've only watched the first episode. Um, so I, I, but it's very much in Mike Flanagan mode. Very, I found the first episode very wordy, <laughs> but he's also always very wordy. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of the same cast members he has, you know, kind of a, a ensemble of his own that he, that he works with, but he has some new people in it, uh, including Mark Hamill. Um, and, uh, it, it, but it's a modern telling it's, it's in modern times, 
Mm. Um, looking at looking at a wealthy family, a thing that we never do on television these days. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a really good point, though. I think, you know, one of the critiques, particularly of um, a lot of these horror television series, right, is they do tend to focus on richer families, the the not met perhaps the 1%, but the 2 or 3%. Um, it's really interesting to me because I've also been watching a lot of haunted house films lately. And mm -hmm. haunted house films tend to be about economic desperation, a family that moved into a house, would mm, love to yeah. leave, but can't afford to leave. And then these mm. gothic series, the families seem to have every economic resource in the world but it's their misery that they're trapped in, not a house they can't afford to get out of. Mm -hmm. What was the one where the woman uh, uh, rented an Airbnb and it was in this really odd neighborhood? And then there was- There's a couple of Airbnb ones like that. Um, gosh, there was one I watched I, and I can't think of the name of it. And that yeah, may be I the think, one you're thinking of. Barbarian, the uh, film? Yes, yes, yes. yes. No, there was a totally different one that I saw before really? Barbarian. Yes, and I can't think of the name of it right now. I apologize, but- yeah, the that's rental? a whole. Was it that one? Maybe couples. Maybe. Yeah, I can't remember now. There's the one there's about the Airbnb really creeped me out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was also sort of there's there's kind of a sub cycle of horror films set in and around Detroit, um, which is mm. also I think yes. really interesting. Mm. Um, not necessarily a local film scene, meaning like not Detroit-based filmmakers setting movies in their own town. But I was like, what is the fascination with Detroit right now for telling American horror stories? That's really fascinating mm. to me. Mm. Wow. I stumbled onto something called Flora and Son on, a I a on Apple TV. Have, have either of you found that yet? I am aware of it. I just haven't had a chance to actually check it out. Uh, well, I'm a fan. I'm an advocate of it. It's uh, directed by the guy who made Once, John mm -hmm. Carney. And it's uh, it's Eve Hewson, who I think is the daughter of Bono. That's correct. Let's Good good uh, callback there, Arch. Yeah, let's keep it you two here. <laughs> Talk about a surprise. And it's 90 minutes. And it's a single mother and her 14-year-old son, and they don't get along. And she finds it's, you know, it's fable-like. She finds a guitar in a throwaway trash heap, fixes it up, gives it to the kid. He doesn't want it. She picks it up, and it becomes kind of a mother and son uh, with a lot of echoes of Coda. You know, it was just completely uh, satisfying. So you want to learn the guitar? This is a gift you can take to your grave. What's your problem? I didn't know I had a problem. You're teaching guitar online, love. What are you hoping to get out of this? I thought this guitar might make me something come cool. The other thing I've really enjoyed lately is theater camp because it made it to Hulu. Mm. Either of you? I'm, I've been wanting to see it and I haven't yet. Yeah, I haven't uh, seen it yet. But doesn't that also have... Um, uh, I'm sorry. Molly Gordon. Yes. yes. Well, I was Molly. also going to say um, a Ayo uh, Adibri. I may be really mispronouncing her name, but the I think it's Ayo Adibri. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. From the Bear and from um, Bottoms, which I, I yes. also just loved this fall. She is on fire. Uh, I 
haven't seen bottoms, but I was uh, fishing around and I found uh, Shiva Baby, which was mm -hmm. Rachel's, or Rachel Sennett's uh, sort of debut film. And Molly Gordon is in that as well. And thanks to Jen, I watched the second ep uh, season of The Bear. And so I've become a big Molly Gordon fan and also Rachel Sennett. Caitlin, you, you like Bottoms. Tell me more. <laughs> I did really like Bottoms. So um, it would be misguided if we didn't say that it is a teen <laughs> sex comedy. But like the best teen sex comedies of the 80s and 90s, and I'm thinking of films like Heather's here, to reduce it to its genre just doesn't do it justice. Um, so it was written by Seligman, uh, Emma Seligman and Rachel Sennett, directed by Emma Seligman. And um, it tells the story of two queer teenagers who decide to start a women's self-defense slash fight club at their high school in order to get closer to um, the objects of their affection, their crushes. And chaos ensues, um, as it always does. <laughs> but I was really impressed both by the way the film handled queerness, which was just, these are who these girls like. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was it was not um, a movie about being gay in the way that I feel like maybe when we were growing up, if a movie was going to have queer characters, it was about being gay. Um, and or it just didn't have them at all for the most part. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. Yeah. The physical comedy um, in Bottoms was also phenomenal. The fight scenes were really funny. Um, there are some uh, revenge antics that I don't want to spoil for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. But it, it felt really great to just go to the movie theater um, to laugh and be entertained by a genre film that was like paying homage to a longstanding film genre, but also felt really fresh and really 2023 and like it just wasn't going to bother itself with the baggage of um, past generations. Loved it. Yeah, so I agree. Are, I loved it too. We're getting to, uh, they're doing the same old thing. Maybe not so much anymore. Yeah, you know, when I wrote that art, I, it was one of those summers of sequels um, <laughs> where I personally felt targeted um, by the Top Gun Maverick sequel. And there were a number of others um, out there probably targeting other folks or other folks finding themselves targeted by the advertising for them. And I was like, this is what I spent all of those months in lockdown pining <laughs> for sequels, really? Yeah, yeah. And um, the prices were only going up. I didn't see any kind of and I'm talking about mostly, but not exclusively, corporate theater chains here. I didn't see any rethinking of what cinema could mean. No sort of build back better, just back to normal. I was like, you know, this wasn't a business model with an infinite future ahead of it anyway. Why aren't we trying to reinvent right now? That was the provocation I wanted to get across. I think that's the problem with television news, if we really want to get off, <laughs> off subject here. <laughs> but I'm a little prejudiced 
so I should drop that. <laughs> but and and it could be the problem with television. And I, I think here's something I'm thinking about that I think both of you can uh, speak to. I'm starting to read all these articles about the effect of the strike on entertainment in the future. And the writers have settled, and it seems like the actors are about to come to an agreement. And I'm reading that uh, once, once they get into production again, we'll see more consolidation of streamers and probably less content. What do you all think? I mean, as a TV critic, if there's a little bit less, I'm in favor of it because there's just been way too much. Uh, and I think everybody knew that that couldn't sustain itself forever. Uh, my my concern, certainly, and I'm I think we all share this is is just what the quality of it is going to be, and to what Caitlin was just talking about, trying to do things that are new, that are surprising, um, because those are the things that require more of a gamble. They're not you don't have a, a you know a built-in audience that you know loves Marvel or loves Star Wars or whatever it may be. Um, but those are the shows that get people like really talking when they're done well, like the bear. I mean, I don't think people necessarily would have thought this show is going to make everybody talk about it, but of course it did. Um, so I, I, I think that's what I'm concerned about is just making sure that like, they're starting to think differently about what they green light and what they don't. I'm not optimistic that that will change very much. I think I even said this on here, like after the Barbie movie, like the lesson should be let the Greta Gerwigs of the world tell the stories that they want to tell, not some more movies about toys because that's not why people went to see that movie um but i have a feeling the conclusion will be let's make more movies about toys yeah yeah i think they're already in production on more of the mattel yeah. toy movies right they are <laughs> Caitlin, what be... do you see in the future you know it's interesting so um i've in in conjunction with the end of the writer's strike i've seen a bunch of articles that are sort of nostalgia pieces um, predicting that we're at the end of quote unquote peak TV, meaning yeah. both we'll just see fewer series quantitatively, but also that we may see less investment in what other folks have called quality TV. And I kind of want to push back against that, right? I think we might be singing the so swan song a little too soon because the big sort of um, landmarks in peak TV or quality TV or television second golden age were hour-long dramas organized around white male anti-heroes, right? So I'm thinking of things here like The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Lost, those early 21st century shows. Well, I'm like, okay, what about The Bear, which is the most inventive sitcom I can, I've seen in decades with the possible exception of Reservation Dogs, an amazing yeah. series that just ended its run, Abbott Elementary, um, and Jury Duty. Jury Duty, I hadn't heard about until it's uh, Emmy nominations, and it's phenomenal. So I was like, I actually think there's something going on with the sitcom right now, even if the drama is getting less cultural attention or industrial support than we saw 10 years ago. Jen, you got it. <laughs> oh, sorry. I thought you were going to say something. Um, no, I mean, I think that's true. I think that's true. People, um, people act like prestige television is going away or, you know, it's, it's stopped because succession ended. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's true, but I am, I'm always worried about just to the, to the note of the consolidation aspect of all of this. 
as you start to try to winnow down, I think what tends to go away first are the things that people perceive as gambles. And inevitably, the things that are truly original often are perceived as gambles. Um, so that's where my concern is. But I totally agree. Like, I don't think that all of a sudden everything has come to a screeching halt and there's no more good television because that is absurd. And as I always tell Archie, he's like, well, I'm out of things to watch. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> it's literally impossible. Yeah. I think the consolidation point is really important, though, Jen. I mean, I think we had reached a place where, golly, I've lost count of how many streaming services I subscribe oh, yeah, to. It's yeah. just unsustainable. Right. So I both agree with you that consolidation is going to put a lot of really creative uh, content in jeopardy. But I also just think that this wasn't a sustainable business model anymore. Right. It's not a, a sustainable for the consumer. So I do think that there needed to be some sort of reorganization or partnerships um, would yeah. be lovely. I, I never thought I'd be advocating for corporate synergy, but it would be <laughs> yes. great yes. to be able to access multiple streaming services for one subscription fee. Mm -hmm. I, I, what you're all talking about is doing the same old thing. I was kind of disappointed when they teased at the end of Only Murders in the Building that there was going to be a fourth season. I really <laughs> think they should stop. Now, I think I think they've done what they can do. Yeah. Maybe I'm maybe they'll surprise us. Who knows? But <laughs> well, we can only hope. Yeah. <laughs> I come from the days when uh movies were the conversation. They were the thing you'd talk about on Monday, you know, that everybody was talking the you you would go to see the really cool thing and then talk about it all week long. And and this year we have Barbie and Oppenheimer. Uh, what do you feel about the uh, the uh, the way they've sort of bigfooted uh, the rest of the uh, movie season? Well, I mean, part of the reason they bigfooted is because of the strike and and things getting moved around, uh, release dates getting pushed back, uh, and all those kinds of things. I mean, I loved the whole Barbenheimer thing. I thought it was great because again, it was two movies by very independent-minded filmmakers telling, you know, stories around figures that in completely different contexts we had some frame of reference for, but but taking them into new directions and and really, I think, challenging um, film or the audiences rather. So um, I am very pro both of those films. And I just think that it was kind of inevitable that they were, I mean, it was inevitable that they were dominating during like, say, July. But the fact that we're still talking about them is 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 sort of a testament to the the strike and the fact that like there hasn't been a huge thing until Taylor comes into theaters next week <laughs> to kind of push them out of the conversation. <laughs> I just loved seeing the enthusiasm for going to the cinema again that Barbenheimer oh, yeah. represented, right? I was like, this is original. This is an organic pairing that's coming from the audience, not from corporate marketing, though there was a lot of corporate marketing for both of those movies. And, you know, I think it, I, it does strike me that in years past, when a movie has had the kind of cultural impact that Barbie had, we did end up discussing it for months afterwards, right? I'm thinking about something like, do the right thing that stayed on top of the cultural conversation for a good six or nine months. And I think Barbie deserves to have that kind of impact. Personally, I'd say Barbie was uh, the best friend Oppenheimer ever had, 
but other people enjoy Nolan movies more than I do. Caitlin, what do you hear from your students? Uh, what are your students like these days? What are they talking about? It's really interesting since we're talking about Barbie. They're still talking about Barbie, oh, but they didn't right. like it. They didn't like it. They did oh, not like it. They really, really? No. they all went um, and they really identified with <laughs> its notes of resistance, but saw Mattel's fingerprints all over it. Um, so I found that my my students who were in their early 20s had a lot more skepticism about the film's feminism than uh, my friends who are in their early 40s to early 50s, which really interested and I have to say surprised me. Um, I'm also, I might be a little bit biased. I'm teaching an American cinema of the 1990s class right now. <laughs> So it's been really interesting to see how um, their generation is responding to that material. I picked the 90s because it's sort of been identified as a retro touchstone for Gen Z. But we recently watched um, Amy Heckerling's Clueless. And mm. they did a bunch of <laughs> Really? Do you yeah, know the reference really you just fun. made? Jen wrote, uh, you... Clueless I wrote is a your book about book. it. I was just going to say, if you need someone to talk to your class about Clueless, let me know. All right. The next time I teach this class, you're up, Jen. <laughs> Watch out. Finally, you two will get together. Yeah. That would be lovely. I would but love to so take this class. You would remember honestly. then, Jen, all of the franchising and marketing and merchandising around Clueless. And mm -hmm. I was sharing with them Kyra Hunting's article about how Hollywood keeps forgetting the female-led franchise. And they went straight from there to Barbie. And we had a fabulous discussion about Clueless's yeah. forgotten impact on American media. Oh, good. Bless. Bless all of you for doing that. But I mean, the funny thing about Clueless to remember is that the marketing stuff didn't come until later. Yeah. Like they they were not, they didn't understand how that movie was going to resonate with people. Like they just thought it was a little film and it would come out and go away. And it didn't. And then all the fashion um, designers and retailers had to try to like play catch up to get stuff in their stores to respond to the demand. So, um, you know, Barbie is like the the opposite of that. They were way out in front of it to like almost ridiculous degree. Mm -hmm. And speaking of marketing, you can buy your copy of As If on <laughs> Amazon <laughs> anytime you Or your local you bookseller. <laughs> or at Politics and Prose. As you're on your way to the Avalon Theater. <laughs> to see Barbie for the Taylor 80th time. Swift. To see Eras. <laughs> As if it's still selling, isn't it? Well, it's still available to purchase. I don't know how many people are <laughs> ripping it off the shelves, but it's definitely out there. Well, it's a great read. So speaking of great reads and merchandising, it's time to turn this show over to Lou Katz. <laughs> to remind us about Hound Radio and the other things going on on this site. Well, Caitlin, you're such a fan of horror in all kinds of aspects. Check out what Hound Radio has coming up for Halloween. For Halloween, Hound Radio is channeling our inner wolf. I got a popcorn ball. I got a fetch ball. I got a pack of gum. I got a rock. And you getting the sweetest treat of all your favorite hound aween hits all halloween long happy halloween from the scariest station on the internet hound 
Radio. I thought we would hear about the next uh, Exorcist. I'm waiting with bated breath. I recently rewatched the original um, with one of my younger cousins who'd never seen it before, obviously as a Georgetown professor. We are all extremely excited by this. I'm really excited that Ellen Burstyn is coming back. You have some experience with possession. Yes, more than I'd like. Exorcism is a ritual. Every culture, every religion, they all use different methods. It's going to take all of them. Don't be scared. We've met before. I had mixed feelings over the years about the Exorcist sequels and spinoffs, um, but the fact that it's coming to us from David Gordon Green, who did such great work with Jamie Lee Curtis in reviving the uh, franchise, the Halloween franchise, and thinking about older women in film. Um, I'm really psyched to see that kind of uh, cycle keep going. But there were all those other Exorcist uh, remakes that kind of flopped. They weren't very good at all. True, but that was true of Halloween, too. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So we'll give this one a shot. Well, we're running down on time. I uh, very quickly, I just I want to mention David McCallum and his passing, and uh, the uh, the uh, the reaction, the love for him, just uh, amazing. Any thoughts? I don't really have any thoughts so much about him. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I thought that was man. lovely, also, but yeah, yeah. 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 And I don't have too much to add, but but it was the tributes are beautiful. Well, my wife is hung up on NCIS, and then every time we would see him, both of us are old enough to remember uh, the man from Uncle. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was, uh, but it's a uh, demographic thing. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, do we have any recommendations for the weekend? I missed going to see um, It Lives Inside this past weekend. So that is the top of my agenda for the coming weekend. Um, It's another A24 horror film. This one particularly um, about a family of Indian descent. And it's great to see horror talking to and coming from and addressing the concerns of communities of color. Tamira, what's going on with you? All the stories we heard growing up, they're all true. It lives inside. Don't you hear it? So I'm psyched for that one. Wow. Jim? So this is uh, more of a recommendation for early next week than this weekend. The the What I think will be the best show of the fall season this year is coming to Hulu on Tuesday, and it's called Moonlighting. Perhaps you oh. saw it in the 1980s. <laughs> yes. Sybil Shepard and Bruce Willis. Don't you It's never been on streaming before. Like that show had such an enormous impact on my understanding of the medium. Uh, I cannot wait. I have some of it on DVD, but I can't wait to just be able to scroll through and watch all the episodes. I understand the thing that held it back is the uh, music rights. Yeah, that's often a problem with with shows like this. And so I don't know if all the cues will be exactly identical to what they were back in the day, but I'm willing to uh, let that slide to, to be able to watch it on Hulu. Well, I want to give a uh, plug again to Flora and Son, which I believe is on Apple TV, 90 Minutes, a musical, and uh, just lovely, Irish. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt has a, 
a shockingly nice role in this film, mostly set in uh, Ireland. And so, uh, and it's right on Apple TV. It's in theaters too, but uh, you can see it at home. We are at the end of our discussion. Caitlin, I'm so glad you could come back on and take time from your classes. And I think we all wish we could sign up for uh, <laughs> films of the 90s. <laughs> and Jen, it's always a pleasure to uh, talk with you at Vulture and New York Magazine. Lou Katz on uh, Hound Radio. Thank you, Lou. Uh, I'm Arch Campbell, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. And thanks so much. This is the Cats Podcasting System, where it's not just a podcast, but a podcast. <laughs>